0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning.
1: Welcome uh, to North Bible Church. Great to see all of you here this morning. It's been a couple weeks since I've been up here. We've had something uh, significant happen in our family since then, since I the last was up here. we uh, Our oldest turned 13, and so we officially have a teenager in the house. And so, which is scary, um, but it, it, truth be told, she's been a teenager for like five years already. So it hasn't been really that big of a difference around our house. But, uh, but good to see you again. Uh, thank you to Wes and Larry for filling in the past couple of weeks. Thank you for leading us, not just filling in, but leading us through scripture. We appreciate that. But we are continuing this morning in week number five on our series on the book of Hosea called The One Thing. And if you've been with us through this series, you know that when we're talking about the one thing, what we are talking about, of course, is the love of God and how understanding that one thing, the love of God, changes everything in our lives, changes the world, changes who we are, changes who we understand ourselves to be, and changes how we live, changes our eternity and we've seen all all the multifaceted aspects of the love of God through the book of Hosea. We've talked about things like how God loves through creation how God loves through choosing a people for himself, how God has pursued those people and how he pursues them in the Old Testament time and time again to bring them back to himself by his grace and mercy. And then, of course, how God establishes his plan of redemption, not only for one nation, but for all nations, and that through this nation, he actually promises to love all nations and redeem them and to draw people back to himself from not just Israel, but from all the world. And so as we've looked at this, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but just as a refresher, God's plan of redemption from the beginning was to establish these people who would be his display people, his show people to the rest of the world. And so in Genesis, we see the beginning of this when God plucks a man by the name of Abram out of the mess that was the Tower of Babel and establishes him and says essentially, the people, the descendants that come from you are going to be blessed by me, but they will also be a blessing to the world. And as we go forward, we see that this nation, these descendants, become the people of Israel, led by Moses, out of the Exodus, into the Exodus, and led in eventually to the land. And as God establishes Israel there, he says to them, You will be my people, and I will display you in the midst of all the nations to everyone, so that they might see who I am through how you live. Ezekiel 5 Uh, Ezekiel chapter 5 shows us a little bit of God's design in this. In verse 5 it says this, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. You can see what God is saying. In other words, God says, I placed Israel deliberately right in the middle of all the other nations so that they might live in a way that glorifies me and then represents who I am to the rest of the world so that they might be drawn to redemption as well, that they might be drawn to knowing God as well there were two things mainly that were included in this one God told Israel this is the way you're to live he gives them the law which the law governed everything from the way that they worshiped to the way that they uh, ethically treated one another to the way that they ethically treated nations around them to even the way that they ate the things that they ate the things that they were allowed to eat the things that they were not allowed to eat and of course how they were governed the law governed all of these things as a reflection of God's character through a group of people and at the same time, Israel was also told you're not to mix with other nations because you need to remain distinct so that people might look at you and say, wow, look at those Israelites. They're different. There's something different about them. And then as the nations look closer, they would see that it is Yahweh, it's God who has made them who they are and that the nations might respond. So Israel was to avoid mixing with other nations and they were supposed to remain unique in the way that they lived in the way that they worshipped and in the way that they We're governed. And as we're going to continue in Hosea chapter 7, that's an important point because we continue in Hosea chapter 7 this morning. We're going to be starting in verse 8 here in just a few minutes. And what we see is that God brings the case, God is bringing this case against Israel, which is essentially expressing to them, this is how you have broken your covenant relationship with me. And in verse 8, we see this statement as it leads off this whole section, which really kind of governs all that we're going to read today. We're going to read in total two chapters. But this statement from the beginning in verse 8 really sets the tone and the theme for the rest of what we're going to read today. And in verse 8 says this, Ephraim, which of course is Israel, uh, referring specifically to the northern kingdom, that was the capital of the northern kingdom, but this is God's way of addressing Ephraim, mixes himself with the peoples, or mixes himself with other nations. Now the question remains though, how exactly has Israel mixed themselves in such a way that God would call them out in this way? Well, to answer that question, we really got to dive a little bit deeper into kind of the geo, geopolitical situation that was going on around Israel at the time of Hosea. The time of Hosea, which was about 750 B.C., around this time, at the time Hosea is saying these words, um, Israel was established in the land, but the big powers, the big uh, superpowers of the time, the biggest empires were Assyria and Egypt, and we actually see Assyria and Egypt referred to on a few different occasions in these chapters directly. I brought a map with me this morning to show you kind of what this looked like at the time. If we could throw that map up there. You can see that map. You've got really what's going on with Assyria on the top. You can see Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, which is the southern kingdom, all incorporated of Israel right there, and then Egypt right there below. So Israel is literally trapped between Assyria to the northeast and Egypt to the southwest. So they're right in the middle of all of this. What's going on at the time is that of course, Israel had this wonderful real estate that they were established in. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was, it was not only that, but it was a land that had great borders along the Mediterranean Sea. Because it was centrally located, it was also something that was prime real estate for trade routes that would run through the ancient world. And so for Assyria and Egypt, this was land that probably both of those kingdoms really, really wanted. Now, in the ancient world, there was no such thing necessarily as the UN or the Geneva Convention, or the rules of war, or anything like that. Essentially, in the ancient world, if you wanted to conquer something, you could go conquer that thing, that country, that people, whoever it may be. And so Israel recognizes this, and they look at the threat that might be Assyria. At this point, Assyria is actually encroaching on the northern border of Israel, as you can see, and Egypt, looking at them and realizing those are nations that are stronger than us. They've got a stronger military. They've got more money than us. And if they want our land, they could just take it anytime they wanted to. And so if you were somebody who was in Israel's position, a country that was in Israel's position at that time, the natural course of action would be to make a treaty with those nations so that they wouldn't attack you and take over your land. And so essentially what you would do is less of a treaty and more of kind of just paying the bully his lunch money so that he wouldn't beat you up. And it it was paying tribute literally to the king, paying money to the king of those nations so that they wouldn't attack you. Now, here's the problem with all of this. God specifically told Israel, don't do that. He told them, look, he didn't want them to have to play that game and suffer through the injustice of it all, and so he promised to establish and protect them. In essence, then, he said, instead of paying the bully, just remember that your king is stronger than the bully, and he will protect you. Why should you fear the kings of other nations when the king of all creation is the one who is protecting you? Sounds great, except Israel chose not to trust God, and ended up making these political treaties with Egypt and Assyria anyway. And in this case, what became political compromise for them actually becomes the front door to allowing them in idolatry. Because what happens here is that as you begin to pay the king tribute, that king of that larger nation actually becomes, in effect, your king. Not only does he take your money, but he also begins to intervene in your affairs and intervene in the laws and the way that you live. So at the same time, the king begins exporting his culture, including the way that they worship. This became the front door then for spiritual idolatry in Israel. And this is why God was so concerned about it. Because of Israel's own distinctiveness, but also because he knew what this would lead to. And this is what's happening here in Hosea chapter 7. Now, as we read from it this morning, as I mentioned, this is going to be two chapters. So the temptation that you're going to have is just to tune out halfway through this. So what I want to do, especially since this is like Hebrew poetry, like ancient Hebrew texts and all this other stuff, right? And, uh, and, and, and judgment oracles and all that. So what I want to encourage you to do, this is a metaphor-dense passage, as a lot of the book of Hosea is. But this in particular, the metaphors mean a lot to what God is trying to say here. We're going to review those metaphors as after we read them. But what I want to challenge you to do, to keep you engaged with this, and to keep you following with us and to keep you awake this morning, especially during first service, is pick out the metaphors, pick out all the metaphors you can as we're reading through this, and try on the fly to try to understand what those metaphors might mean. And then we'll see how how well you did when we go through and explain it later. Okay? Good? All right. We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 8. If you have your Bibles with you, devices, we also have uh, the scripture up on the screen behind me. And it says this, verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples, and Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. And as they go, I will spread over them my net, And I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I have trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. And they shall, they shall be their, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Chapter 8. I set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. But Israel has spurned the good The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. And with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria, and my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not from God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, but they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads; it shall not yield. It shall yield no flour, and if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. And Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws, by the ten thousands they would be regarded as a strange thing. As my sacrificial offerings they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, and so I will send fire upon his cities, and cover, and it shall devour her strongholds. Chapter 9, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not in the peoples, for you have played the whore forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they will eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It will be like mourners' bread to them, all who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only, it shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, and on that day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Recompense. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. Okay, thank you for bearing with me on that. Some of my mispronunciations and whatever. But, But what you can see there is You can see a lot that's going on here. And it may seem strange that we start in the middle of a chapter and then we end in the middle of a chapter. But you may know this, that when these words were originally written in their original form, they didn't have chapter and verse assigned to them from the beginning. Chapter and verses were added later by editors. And so sometimes as you're reading through this, the chapters don't break naturally where the themes actually intersect. And this is one of those cases, I think. You know, Because as Wes ended two weeks ago, Wes ended with verse 7, and what we saw in Wes's section as he talked about repentance and the scripture that he, he led us through a couple weeks ago, he was talking about really the kind of the spiritual condition of what's going on in Israel on a more of an internal basis, and when we get to verse 8, God shifts the focus then back out to kind of these international relations, and specifically to, again, this political mixing that has happened with Israel and her agreements and her Um, and her treaties with Egypt and Assyria. You see Egypt and Assyria referred to at least a few different times in different ways. And God does this through metaphors, and one of the ways that he gets their attention is metaphor number one happens right in the very first verse, verse 8. And he says, like, Israel, you are like an uncooked cake or an unflipped cake. Essentially what that means is it's like a pan, have you ever a, cooked a pancake before like on a griddle and you grill just the one side and the top side's still kind of all battery and doughy and, and, and liquidy and that kind of thing? It's like pulling that pancake off before it's even flipped and trying to serve it to somebody, right? Nobody's going to eat that. It's disgusting. It's useless. And God says in the same way, this is who you were supposed to be, Israel, and yet you're like an unturned cake, completely useless to who, you, who I've called you to be among the nations. And the reason for that is this. Your strength has been zapped. Your strength has been taken from you by strangers. These strangers being Egypt and Assyria. And who was their strength? Their strength was God. God as their king was their strength. And he says, well, Look, this was your strength. I brought you up. I established you. I was supposed to be your king. And you've totally given up your strength in order to follow after these human kings of Egypt and Assyria. And then I'm not particularly fond of this next metaphor for obvious reasons in verse 9, but he says, the gray hairs that are upon your head signal that you've lost your strength and that death judgment is impending, is coming, is on the horizon. And he says, you knew it not, you knew it not over and over again. So it's almost like they had these gray hairs, so to speak, but they didn't know about it. Like they went to bed one night and they had Aaron Anderson's hair or Daniel Comstock's hair and they woke up the next morning and they had my hair. And it wasn't like this happened like overnight, necessarily. This is happening over a long period of time. But God is holding up the mirror and saying, Look, Israel, the gray hairs are upon your head. Judgment is coming. Spiritual death is reigning among you because of what you have done. Your, peri- your political compromise has led to your spiritual compromise. And as verse 10 tells us, their pride has been right in front of them the whole time, but they were blind to see it. Continuing there with the the metaphor, a different metaphor with a similar meaning, God talks about a dove who is a senseless dove that is caught in a snare. And why a dove? Well, apparently, apparently doves are very senseless creatures, especially when they see food or they see bait in particular. In other words, if a dove sees food, a dove will focus on that food to the detriment of their senses being aware of the surroundings around them. So they're very easy to trap. Even if there's danger coming behind them, they can't see that because the one thing they're focused on is that food. And so it's very easy to throw out the bait for a dove and to trap them. And then God joins this with a picture of the birds being brought down from the heavens, the birds birds made for the skies to fly free and to be safe, Being brought down to the ground obviously makes birds subject to being destroyed, subject to being prey for predators. And as God continues throughout this, he says, look, again, your compromise has brought you down to the ground, and you've set a trap for yourselves based on what I have told you not to do. And then woe is a striking call, a shout, an alarm. This woe saying, woe to Israel, wake up. And it's designed to really stop them in their tracks and cause them to turn around. In a similar way, he says, blow the shofar horn, blow the trumpet at the beginning of chapter 8. Wake Israel up because where they are going is headed for destruction. And then chapter 8 gives us this really ominous picture of a vulture flying over, circling over the house of the Lord. And when you combine the gray hairs with the dove, with the impending net that's coming, the snare that he's walking towards, and then the vulture that is circling around the house of the Lord. You can see how these things all play together. Because of what you've done, Israel, you've lost your strength. And God's heart is kind of broken. You can see that he gets very personal where he says, look, I've given you your strength. I've raised you up. I've put strength in your arms. And yet that bow that you draw back is treacherous, it's broken. The way that you've been designed, the way that you've been called to reach the nations, the way that you've been called to love me has been broken. And not only is that bow malfunctioning, but it's threatening to injure the archer as he pulls it back. It's modern-day equivalent of shooting yourself in the foot. Look, Israel, you have shot yourself in the foot. I have been your king from the beginning, and yet because of what you have done, you've shot yourself in the foot. And it's this tragic picture that then continues on into chapter 8, and God begins to explain exactly what's going on here. Look, you've established kings that I don't know that weren't from me, You've established princes over you that were not for me. And as a result, then, you see this play between altars and palaces. Altar is a place of worship. Palace is a place of political power. And those two things have been brought in from foreign gods and from foreign idols and become the things that you now worship instead of me. And so we're not surprised, then, when we get back to chapter 9 and we see a motif, we see imagery that's been so familiar throughout the book of Hosea, God says, look, because of your political compromise, the spiritual compromise has gone hand in hand. And now you have become people, again, who are like spiritual whores, who are like spiritual prostitutes, that have laid down on your bed to receive your grain and wine from your other lovers, and now you're foreign to me. And so, as you get to this place at the end, right, there's all these different metaphors and all these different ways that God is using throughout these two chapters to draw together this one central rebuke to them. Look, because you have not trusted me, you've grown fearful. Because you have grown afraid and fearful, you've started to look to the other nations to support you and to protect you rather than me who, who promised from the beginning to protect you. I am your king. I am the one who is sovereign. I am the one whom you're supposed to represent. And as soon as you start bringing in all of those other things, you no longer look like my people were supposed to look. And the question then for us is, what does this have to say to us today? I mean, do the political alliances of Israel, Assyria, and Egypt that happened 3,000 years ago on the other side of the planet really have anything directly to say to us today as Christians in the year 2020 in the U.S.? Well, I think even hearing the word politics probably gets our attention a little bit, especially in the politically charged culture that we live in right now. And the question is, like, what does this play into? How does this work? Is this directly related to us? Is it somewhat indirectly? Does it have nothing to do with us? What exactly is this having to say to us? And I think if I'm looking at this, this has a lot to say to us and is directly connected maybe in ways that we might not anticipate or see. First of all, I'd say this, is that our calling is much like, as God's people, as the church today, is much like the same calling that Israel had in their day. In other words, they were called to be people who were representing God as their king to the rest of the world. And that same kind of calling is extended to us today, that we represent Jesus and God's kingdom to the rest of the world. So 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 says this, all this is from God, through, uh, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we, all of us as Christians, are given this charge of the ministry of reconciliation. That just as God has reconciled us through Christ, which makes us Christians, which makes us born-again Christians, we have now been given this same ministry out into the world. And we're even kind of titled in this case with a, a political term of being ambassadors. People who represent the king out into a world or to a foreign government into to a foreign land. Now to flesh out what ambassador means a little bit more in terms of mission, um, I want to refer to Ed Stetzer, who's an author and missiologist. He gives us really three ways that I think are helpful in breaking down what it means to be ambassadors for Christ. First of all, he says that we are sent with an allegiance to the king. In other words, as as Jesus, as our king, as ambassadors, our commitment is to represent Jesus and his kingdom without compromise. That even though we aren't per- and even though we aren't perfect in this, the clarion call in everything we do is to be asking ourselves as ambassadors, how well am I representing who my king is and what his kingdom is all about? So first, we are sent with an allegiance to the king. We are sent with a message of reconciliation. Paul says here, look, we have the message of reconciliation, which is the truth of the gospel, which is about God's redeeming love, that God seeks us to redeem us and to reconcile us with himself, through Jesus Christ, and we are brought back into a reconciliation. And then we are charged with that same kind of message. Just as we have been reconciled, we are to go out and to preach reconciliation to God, to the world. And then third, we're sent into a foreign land with a mission to complete. Now this does not necessarily mean that we go literally to a foreign land, but it means that we are people who are representatives of a kingdom reality, the kingdom of Jesus, which go out into places where Jesus is not king And to make him known with the mission that we have to complete. And so this mission is not contrived by us. It's not motivated by us. It's not shaped by us. It is a mission that has been given to us by our king. And as ambassadors, we're to represent his calling. So if you're a Christian and you take seriously your call to be an ambassador of Jesus' kingdom, it will change the way that you live your life. And it's very similar to the calling that God gave to Israel. Now, I would say not only is the calling the same that God gave to Israel here in the book of Hosea and even before this, but also the temptation to compromise is much the same for us today. Stetzer continues and he says this, look, as American Christians, we are tempted in a lot of ways by the things that are around us. And by his assessment, the number one idol in American culture, which is something I agree with as well, at least one of them, is politics. In our country is partisan politics in particular. Listen to what he says here. Few idols have wreaked as much havoc in the church and hurt our witness more than the way evangelicals have engaged in politics. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not. I'm sure some of you don't, but this is not to say that the Bible is not political. I would say, in fact, the Bible is very political. When you look at things like king and kingdom, those are politically charged terms. But the question becomes then, what are the politics of Jesus' kingdom? Because again, as ambassadors, we're called to represent the allegiance and the fidelity of the one who has called us, who is our King Jesus. So that's a huge question, I think we're actually going to spend eternity figuring that exa- out exactly, what the kingdom of Jesus fully looks like. But here's the thing. I think there are some things that we can latch onto that help give us guide points here. And one of the places I'd look at is Psalm 89, verse 14 where it says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The psalmist paints for us a picture. What are the key aspects and characteristics of the kingdom of God? It is righteousness and it is justice. Let's do a deep dive quickly on those two words. The word righteousness is primarily a relational term. In a broad sense, it refers directly to our relationship with God, human beings' relationship with God. Righteousness pictures who we are supposed to be as the created ones who reflect the image of God back to God and out to creation. So everything that has to do with righteousness has to do with the way that we were created to live, the way that we were to represent the nature and the character of God as beings created in his image. And righteousness is primarily a relational term, that we have our place with our creator and it's the way that it's supposed to be. Justice, on the other hand, although it's related to righteousness, is a bit different. Justice is how righteous, the righteousness of God is extended into the world around us in a way that honors the image of God in every person who has been created in the image of God. Justice is treating people and responding to people in a way that pleases our King Jesus because he has created them in his image. And so if you want to put it this way, righteousness is kind of like loving God and justice... Tied to loving God is like loving our neighbor. They break down. When Jesus says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is righteousness and justice. And I would say primarily these things have to be a part of our political thought and process as we approach what politics might look like in our world. What are the politics of the kingdom? They're about righteousness and justice which sounds great, right? Man, it'd be great if we could just have righteousness and justice everywhere, flourishing. I believe it'll be that way someday. But as you look around in our world, it's not like that today. So the question becomes, how does that fit into the system that we're in? I'm just gonna take, I'm just gonna drill down to where we are currently and and where we are engaging currently. I think when you see applying the kingdom of God, righteousness and justice, to our immediate context, it's really difficult to force-fit those two things into the two-party system that we are a part of here in the U.S. In fact, I would say it's impossible the way we have it set up right now. The kingdom of God does not fully fit in the, de- in the Democrat or Republican Party. Neither one of those platforms fully represent righteousness and justice in terms of the kingdom of God. At best, those governments sometimes reflect each of them in their own way, elements of righteousness and justice. And I think many times it's only when they can get out of their own way that they manage to do that. And look, God is bigger. The kingdom of God is bigger than those things, than those concepts. And in case you need an illustration of this, I encourage you to do this sometime. Get in your car, drive about six hours due west, and you'll arrive somewhere around Mission Beach eventually as you run out of land. And as you get there, get out of your car, find the biggest container you can carry, walk out onto the beach, walk into the ocean to where you can still feel your feet on the ground and fill that container with as much water, ocean water, as you can and walk back onto the shore. Look at the water that you have in your container, then look at the ocean. The ocean represents the kingdom of God. The container that you have represents what one or both of our parties might contain about the kingdom of God. And one thing you might realize is that that water that you've taken doesn't fully capture the vastness of the ocean. It doesn't even really capture the complete consistency of the ocean because if you were to take a boat and go half a mile out, you would certainly get water that's different in salinity, different in composition, different temperature, different sea life than the water that you have on the shore. And so force-fitting the kingdom of God or forcing yourself or forcing others into one party, political party, or the other is like saying, this is the ocean that I've captured in this container. Maybe it's a milk jug, maybe it's a cooler, whatever it may be. When the ocean itself is maybe 10 yards away. And look, arguing with people over partisan politics is like saying, I've got more of the ocean in my container than you do while you're standing on the shore. And the ocean is 10 yards that way. This is why Ed Stetzer says this. He makes this conclusion. Look, salvation is not coming on Air Force One. And Jesus will not come riding on a donkey or an elephant. Christians have a moral obligation to have a prophetic witness and confront evil. We can lose that witness when we are unable to see the errors or failings of leaders. If you see your political party as never being wrong, there is a problem. Some Christians seem more interested in political loyalty than in love of neighbor. Look, if you're a Christian, I think for all of us we would like to say that my faith determines my political engagement and not the other way around, right? That we vote, that we engage in politics, to whatever extreme we do that, to whatever measure we do that, based upon what we believe the Bible has to say. I think we'd like to believe that. Sociologists have told us otherwise, though. There's this disturbing trend within the U.S., I would call it disturbing, where in a lot of cases, sociologists have pointed out that in, in, in church, and outside of church, just in our culture in general, that politics is actually becoming the new religion, So as a result, what happens is that our politics begin to determine and form our faith and our understanding of Scripture rather than the other way around for those of us who are in the church. And I wish I could say that that those, those findings are erroneous. But I would have to say that based on my experience in church, they probably are fairly accurate, which is a disturbing and troubling thing. Let me tell you what I mean. A few years ago, I preached a sermon um, from 2 Corinthians 5, actually, about being ambassadors for Jesus and what that looks like. I was at, at the time, I was at a church in Tucson, outside of Tucson there, and I made a point to say this, because at the time, the big thing in the news and the big debate going on politically was, what do we do with the Syrian refugee crisis that's going on? And you remember the debate? It was like, do we allow refugees into the country? If so, how do we vet them? Those kinds of things, right? You may remember this happened a few years ago. It was a big discussion it was everywhere in the news and so I brought that to the surface and I said look and I made a point to say I'm not talking about political policy of the United States like I even made a joke like that's above my pay grade like I'm not speaking to any of that but what I'm talking about is how as Christians we should respond to refugees to these men and women and children created in the image of God who've been driven from their home due to political violence and terrorism some millions of people how should we feel about that? And if our government decides the best course of action is to allow refugees into our country, how are you going to respond as a Christian if one moves into your neighborhood? If a family moves into your neighborhood? How do you love them as a Christian? That's all I said, right? This is what it means to be an ambassador. I made a point over and over again. It's not a political issue. It's something other than this. I had a young man come up to me after the sermon, and he said to me, you know that you just preached that sermon in one of the most conservative areas in the country? <laughs> I was like, yeah, what's your point? He's like, I, I, don't, I just wanted to let you know that. And he walked away. And I thought to myself, and I don't mean to single him out, I think he was, I, I actually appreciate him because he actually had the guts to come and talk to me about it. There are many people who talked about it, not with me, and I didn't appreciate that as much. But I was thinking to myself afterwards, okay, so what's your point? Are conservative Are politically conservative people not supposed? Who are Christians not supposed to love refugees? Is that your point? And look, I made the point that part of this is that we have the opportunity to love Muslims, uh, people who come from a Muslim background, with the love of Jesus in a way that they may have never seen expressed in their country. This is an opportunity to be ambassadors for Jesus. This past summer, last year, I was in Jordan. You may know this, but Jordan is one of the countries, I think the country that has taken in the most Syrian refugees since 2011 when this crisis started. To give you an idea, the the population of the country of Jordan is about 7 million people before the refugee crisis. It's now about over 9 million because they took in 1.8 million refugees to this point from Syria. Imagine that. To give you some perspective, the population of the state of Arizona is a little over 7 million. Comparable in population. Imagine taking in 1.8, nearly 2 million refugees into the state of Arizona alone. What would that do to our resources? What would that do to our infrastructure? And that's what's going on in Jordan right now, and it's been going on for several years. The population of Christians in Jordan is about 3% of the population. There are churches in Jordan who are deliberately reaching out to refugees who can't find health care and can't find basic needs, because the country can't give them anything at all and they don't have any of their health care that they left behind. To reach out to them to give them health care at churches, the love of Jesus with the opportunity to share the gospel. I spent a couple days with this ministry and I tell you it's amazing to be able to see how you can sit in the home of a Muslim and share Jesus with them for the first time that they have ever really heard who Jesus is from an actual Christian. Showing the love of Christ the entire time. And my concern is that as I talked about things like that a few years ago, is that what I realized is that when you talk about these issues, they automatically become political in our minds before they become biblical. In other words, how do I respond to the refugee crisis? I got to run to my favorite party's political platform to tell me how I should think about this rather, running, rather than running to the scriptures. And that's, what, that, that's ultimately what the issue becomes if we're not careful. Tim Keller says it this way, when we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent upon it. And make no mistake, these things become idolatrous. If our first reaction is to question, is to go to political loyalty rather than biblical loyalty. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. This may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks about openly leaving the country. They demonstrate that they have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that was once reserved for God and the work of the gospel. Tim Keller's a pastor, and that's his concern as a pastor. That when our reaction to politics is this strong, politics has become an idol. As a pastor, that's my same concern. Does it own our hearts? Has it become an idol? And we can tell this is a problem when we begin to hate each other for our politics, when we can't love each other because somebody disagrees with me about a political issue, when we begin to call other people enemies who believe differently than us politically, when we look at people less than people who are created in the image of God because they believe in some political policy that we disagree with. And like the senseless dove from Hosea, we've become so focused on the one thing that doesn't matter that we can't see that we've set a trap for ourselves. And look, I certainly have opinions about politics. My undergrad, if you can't tell, <laughs> my undergrad was in uh, public policy, and I pursued that undergrad because I wanted to study political science and sociology and criminology and those kinds of things, and I love it. I love talking about it. And I, and I know that there is a place for this kind of discussion. And when I look at the Bible and see the kingdom and the king, the reality is that these are, again, political terms that warrant political discussion but I have to say this that I've gotten into a place where I only talk about politics privately with two friends that I trust in my life both Christ followers both men who I've known for years one who's I think a little to the right of me politically and the other one who's a little to the left of me politically and we talk about politics all the time and we disagree all the time but at the end of it we still love each other as brothers in Christ And we still say, this is how we're trying to work out what the kingdom of God looks like in our world through partly politics. And look, one of the reasons I won't tell you exactly where I fall is because I think it's illegal, I don't know, maybe, especially from the pulpit. But also because I know, sadly, that no matter where I fall, I might be judged by you. By being either too politically liberal or too politically conservative for your tastes, and here's what I'm really afraid of: is that my politics will matter more than what I'm than what I'm teaching from the Bible. And at least a few of you, it's driving you crazy right now because I won't tell you which side of the partisan line I fall on. And it's funny, but it's part of the problem. But I believe I'm following Jesus' lead on this. You know, there's a well-known saying from the Gospels where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. If you know the context of that, what's going on is the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus in this political question of the day. It was a hot-button political question of the day. Jesus was getting too popular, they were trying to trap him, kind of incite some people against him, and so they asked him this question about whether or not the Hebrews, who were being oppressed and dominated by the Romans, should pay taxes to Caesar. Essentially, they were saying, are you a liberal or a conservative, Jesus? Let's hear it. And Jesus comes with this beautiful response, and he says, render to Caesar what is is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. In other words, these political things, represented by Caesar, do matter. Give to them their due diligence, but in the end, reserve your heart, your hope, your identity for God. These things cannot own your heart, they cannot own your hope, they cannot own your identity. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. These things are important for us to discuss. They matter. But in the end, don't allow it to own your heart. I want to challenge you this morning to think about how you might respond to this. Um, for, For a lot of us, it's going to be a little bit different, right? For some of you, you could care less about politics. In that case, you're probably not even listening to me anyway. You gave up 20 minutes ago. But i got to say, in an election year, you know that you're going to be bombarded by all kinds of temptations to, be, to respond to political agendas. And I just want to pray for you that you would continue to guard your heart in these areas. Hopefully you vote, and so you're trying to inform yourself about those things. For, those of us, for some of us, we really need to reset some things. Because our political angst has caused us to get angry, to get bitter, to get spiteful and to lose sight of the mission of God as ambassadors not of the right or the left, but ambassadors of the kingdom of Jesus. And so I want to invite the band to come up. And as they do, I want to give you some suggested responses for this election year. You can take these for what they're worth. They can inspire you. They can you know, do whatever they can encourage you. Maybe there's a few of these that you feel like you want to engage in. But first of all, pray. Pray for yourself. Pray that God would protect your heart from compromise and that way he would expose any idols in your heart, especially in this area. Pray that you would engage politics in the right way, that it wouldn't cause you to grow angry or to despair. Secondly, put down your voter's guide and pick up the Bible. If you want a place to start with, start with Matthew 5-7 which was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, really a description of what the kingdom of God looks like. And if you want a real challenge, write your own voter's guide based on Matthew 5 through 7. Write your own voter's guide. Not something that an organization has published, but write your own based on the words of Jesus from Matthew 5 through 7, for example. Three, maybe this is for you, detox from media. Turn off all politically charged media for a month. Don't watch TV channels that talk about politics in a partisan manner, which is pretty much every cable news channel you can find. So I'll just save you the trouble there if you're trying to figure out which one's which. Any cable news channel you can find, don't watch it for a month. Also, if social media is a place where you engage in this, on Facebook, Twitter, wherever it may be, don't get on social media for a month or at least unfollow all of those things that interject all these political issues into your timeline. Number four, pray for our world. Every time you're tempted to go onto those media sites or to watch that cable news channel, instead pray for our leaders, pray for our government, pray for your neighbors. Fifth, stop the social media posts. It's a big one. I don't know what we think we're accomplishing by throwing Facebook posts up about politics. Look, the people who agree with you politically are just going to agree with you and they'll give you the thumbs up. Maybe that's what we're addicted to. We need the thumbs up. People who don't agree with you are just going to entrench themselves in their perspectives and they're probably going to like you a little less. So if you're trying to address Aunt Gladys passive-aggressively on gun control or health care or immigration because she disagrees with you, call Aunt Gladys on the phone and take her to Starbucks instead. Have a good old-fashioned conversation about it and buy her a latte at least before you dismantle her whole political belief system. Next, listen to others. Listen to a friend who has a different political perspective than you. Find somebody and just listen to what they have to say. Don't sit there and come up with counter arguments. Just listen. Find a Christian, find a non-Christian who believe differently politically than you and just listen. Listen for their desire for righteousness and justice. It'll come out, I promise you. You'll be surprised at how many things you might have in common. You're just seeking them in different ways. Assess your relationships. Do an assessment of the relationships in your life that have been broken because of political divisions or that have been harmed in some way because of that. Go and reconcile that relationship. Again, the ministry of reconciliation starts with us being reconciled with God but also being reconciled to others. Reconcile that relationship and apologize even if necessary. And finally, love your neighbor. You have political passions. You want to see the world changed by politics? Do something to love your neighbor concretely concretely, in a way that promotes righteousness and justice and flourishing in the world. So I want to lead us now to that first one that I suggested. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful for your word. We are thankful for the way that your word speaks to us in so many different ways how your word exposes our hearts, how it lays it bare before you and then promises in the end that, Lord, you give us blessing. Lord, you discipline us because you love us. You confront idols in our hearts because they harm us and they destroy us. And, Lord, the way that you love us is to show us your goodness towards us. Lord, we pray that in areas that we are, are struggling related to, to what we've talked about today, Lord, that you would give us a vision for your kingdom in the end. And we know that uh, your kingdom is vast, that your kingdom, when we see your kingdom come to this earth in its fullness, we are going to be amazed. There are going to be things we say that, oh, I, I never imagined it would be this way or oh, I totally thought it would be different. And so, Lord, you confound the wise among us because your ways are greater than ours. And I want to ask this morning, Lord, that you would impress us with the vastness of your kingdom, that we might be humbled, that we might see that there is an ocean out there that the world is longing to see. And Father, forgive us when we've just shown them the milk jug of shore water as a substitute. Guide us, Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We know you are faithful. We thank you that you call us your ambassadors. What an amazing, wonderful calling that is. But, Spirit, we need you to guide us into that. We need your power. We need your strength, Lord. You are the strength of our arms to even move forward in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: In just a moment,
1: You may have noticed that as uh, our country gets a little bit more uh, politically divisive and extreme on either end, that there's a huge swath of people in the middle who are just frustrated with this whole process. And I want to encourage you this, this year that in 2020, as that election year kind of creeps up on us, and as we get closer to November, this is only going to get more and more extreme, I believe. And so look, this is an opportunity that we have as Christians who represent not one side or the other, but the third alternative that's actually best the kingdom of God. And so I want to encourage you and charge you with that as you think about what is our calling? What does it look like to navigate these waters? Sure, have your opinions on either side, but at the same time, that third alternative is where I believe God wants to lead us as the church. Seeing people who live a different way, an alternative way, than what we're so used to, accustomed, accustomed to seeing in our culture. So go with the encouragement of God and the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Have a great week.